Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. sorry, I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 162 of Citizen Dame, the podcast where I couldn't think of anything funny to say because I'm really tired and it's Saturday and I was up really late watching Lois Weber films. So there you go. (laughs) I'm Karen Peterson, joined as always by my amazing co-host, Lauren Humphreys-Brooks. Hello. Lauren, how are you? I'm doing all right on this gray overcast since we do the weather report every day. Um, <laughs> this gray overcast, kind of breezy, very actually kind of nice day in, in Brooklyn. You know, it's nice to things have cooled off a little bit. It was very hot during the week. Yeah. Yeah. I heard it was. Uh, here it is beautiful blue skies. There's not a cloud in sight and it's 68 degrees. I think the high is like 76. So Ooh, that sounds lovely. perfect California day. Mm-hmm. Yeah so um let's get into it first of all um we wanted to jump back into our discussion from last week because (laughs) we spent the next two days after we recorded going hey we forgot this movie we forgot that movie and so we thought we should jump back into that so first of all one of the big misses that we did not cover last week in our pride episode was um some like it hot and you were the first one to point that out so (laughs) well I was going you know I was listening to the episode because I was editing it and I was and when the question about like you know studio system Hollywood classical Hollywood came up I was like how the fuck did we not mention some like it hot Mm -hmm. a movie in which Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon pretend to be women and like and there's especially when we talked about the birdcage and we talked about two Wong Fu (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah and and like granted granted there's that's the something like it you know we're talking about what films get away with a lot um mm-hmm. something like it hot gets away with a lot yeah by sort of you know setting up this this kind of thing we're just like well they're you know they're not gay they're they're dressing like women because they need to be um they need a job right right and the reason i i said like it was weird that we didn't think of it with those other two movies was not because of thematic similarities but because you have straight actors playing these characters and spending most of the movie dressed as women that's why well and it's very it is a very queer film particularly Mm -hmm. the relationship between um daphne right i was yeah i was just like she initially she's going to be Geraldine and then she decides that she's going to be Daphne (laughs) and uh and the Joey Brown character right Osgood Mm -hmm. um and and it's it's such a funny relationship and everything but again the ending and spoiler alert for anyone who's not seen some like a hot please if you haven't like dear god go see it um but the ending where you know he's just like I'm a man like I can't marry you because I'm a man that's the reason why we can't have this relationship and the immediate like well whatever uh, nobody's perfect like it's like 
And then that's what they end on, I think is fantastic. <laughs> but there's no like, oh no, actually we can't get married or hard. It's just like, no, Osgood loves him. Like mm-hmm. he loves who he is and it doesn't matter that he's a man. Yep, exactly. And it's so great. And it's funny because the first time I watched it, I, I just, I don't know. It, I just didn't love it and not for any particular reason I just was like eh, it's fine I think it was one of those movies that people had talked about it so much for you know my whole childhood that I was expecting something different I don't know but I've watched it again over the years and it's just it's funny and it's <laughs> now I'm the I need to watch it today that's that's gonna be my after this podcast is over movie today one of the things I really like about it is that, you know, it, it kind of, it uses this, this whole MacGuffin basically, right? Okay. We yeah. have to dress as women because the mob is after us and we need right. a job. <laughs> and of course they're never going to look for us in this girl band because it's made up entirely of girls. And so, so much of the humor is, is exactly comes from that. And the fact that, you know, the audience knows that they're men, but none of the other people around them know that they're men. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like the fact that so much of it is about these men coming to understand women and male-female relationships in a very different way, simply by the fact that, you know, they're, they're having to perform as women. So the Tony, the Tony Curtis's character, his entire arc is realizing that, you know, he cannot behave this way with women because he's actually seeing the way that it affects them. Yeah. And understanding that, you know, maybe his attitude and his behavior makes him unworthy of, of sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, you know, he eventually says to her at the end, it's just like, no, you're, I'm a, I'm, I'm this bad dude, but then it turns out that he really isn't. And I like that. I like that. It's so much about kind of men stepping into women's shoes and literally, and, <laughs> and having to kind of come to terms with their own behavior. Yeah. And I think that's why it works so well. I mean, this is, yeah, it's really funny, but it also, it has some really important points to make. And I think that this is something we're going to talk a little bit about when we get into Lois Weber's films today. But, um, you know, one of the things I, I love in, in some like it hot and, and just in, in some other films too, is the way that stepping literally sometimes into someone else's shoes is the only way to really understand their perspective. Like sometimes we just, because of our attitudes, because of our lives, because of whatever, um, we cannot. And I, I mean, like we, we just don't, you know, like sometimes we, we really, really truly can't, but, um, mostly it's that we just, we can't allow ourselves to think about something in a really truly empathetic way until we experience what they have experienced yeah and and i i like also the that really jerry right who becomes daphne Mm -hmm. that becomes who he is like it's like he's suddenly come into his own just like oh this is the person that i've always wanted to be or that i've always been and so there is that like transgressive element to it there's a great line where like um uh joe joe was saying like well why would a guy want to marry a guy mm-hmm. and and he says security like it's it's he <laughs> doesn't even 
cross his mind that this might not be possible. He's just like, well, you know, his mother might not like me, but I think that I can convince her, but I, but it doesn't really worry me because I don't smoke. It's like, you're a, you're a man. Like, <laughs> this is not something that's acceptable in this society. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yet, and, and yet the thing that he's worried about is just like, well, I'm not worried because I don't smoke. It's, no, that's not, that's not the thing that his mother's going to be concerned about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's, um, it is a wonderful film. It's a, it, and it is a very queer film and definitely, totally, definitely, definitely yeah. one of those, it was so popular too. Um, mm-hmm. And definitely one of those that, you know, made a lot of inroads, partially by treating it as a joke. Uh, it's sort of like this is a comedy this is funny you know ah ha ha isn't it funny we've got these two very male masculine men right dressing up as women and sort of the screwball nature of what ensues after that but it manages to be very very transgressive because it uses the comedy as an excuse yeah well and I think that there are a lot of great films that that do similar things where it's like you almost trick the audience into feeling empathy for a group of people <laughs> that they wouldn't necessarily normally feel anything for. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, you can get away with a lot. You play, oh, it's just a joke. Yeah. You know, it's it's like, well, but it really, that's how Mae West got away with, how, with, with as much as she did. Well, it's just a joke, you know? Yeah, they exactly. don't really ever say anything that's, that's, that's wrong. You're putting an interpretation on that. Like, <laughs> it's just like, but you know that she's actually getting away with a great deal. Right, yeah. Well, Some Like It Hot is available to watch on Prime Video and Hoopla and Tubi. So if you have not watched it or if it's been a while, you have some options to watch it again is there any other ones i feel like there were a couple of others that we were going to talk about uh well we also wanted to mention that we got a question about dog day afternoon mm-hmm. um, which we failed to answer uh yesterday sorry we're really sorry about that it just it was down further on our agenda and we just missed it um that's from at noah underscore saturn would you consider dog day afternoon part of queer cinema um i don't know how to answer that because I don't know enough of the history of Dog Day Afternoon to, to be able to say it. I mean, the, the kind of turn that that film takes is that it, it turns out the Al Pacino, the reason why the Al Pacino character is pulling off this, this bank heist or trying to um, is because he's, he's getting, he wants to get enough money to help his um, transgender and I don't think they use the term transgender they might use the term transsexual depend I, I can't remember um exactly how they refer to in the it. 70s it's probably transsexual yeah. yeah so so to help his lover uh get a, a sex change operation and and so that's part of it it's I I don't know how to say whether or not this is part of queer cinema it definitely has queer themes in it and it treats it treats of both of them as very um uh, sympathetic in that sense like mm-hmm. I yeah I, I I've I don't know exactly whether to say that this is part of queer some I think that a lot of people would consider it that because it has an explicitly queer plot thread yeah well and and my feeling on this is like because I, I looked at a lot of you know I did I did a little bit of research to see what other people had to say and it does land on a lot of lists from people in the lgbtq plus community and so for me it's like well i don't know 
I, I'm with you. I don't know that I would particularly say, oh yes, this definitely is. But if other people are saying it, I'm not going to tell them they're wrong. Well, and there's this whole thing. There, part of that subplot is also about that he considers his his lover his wife, mm-hmm. um, and that they had a marriage ceremony and all this, so that there is that element to it. Now, on the other side of it, he's also already married um, right. to to a woman and has got several children. And this is so. There's this whole thing that's going on in the background that is kind of a left turn in some ways in terms of the film itself. Uh, because you don't entirely expect this to be kind of the background to it, but it, it is treated in a, in a fairly sensitive way, particularly for the time period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess the answer is sure. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think the I answer think is, yes. Yeah, this seems to be something that comes up a lot, and mm-hmm. um, definitely in terms of queer representation on screen, it's one of the more prevalent ones. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay, any others before we move on to the great Lewis Weber? I think, I mean, I want to talk about him more in depth at some point, but we did fail to mention Sean Waters last week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is is just unforgivable. Yes, John Waters is kind of the high king of queer cinema. So. <laughs> yeah, we should probably at some point do just a whole episode about him um down the road when i've had time to watch more of his films i've seen like three <laughs> whole bunch are on criterion yeah yeah they are <laughs> especially some of those early ones i think you can watch pink flamingos <laughs> and female trouble and multiple maniacs which i'm sorry i did not like um i know i know what he's doing but i'm just like this is this has crossed several lines for me (laughs) which it's supposed to you know what it's supposed to those films that he particularly is very early films they're supposed to cross multiple lines so i'm like all right it's just not necessarily for me (laughs) not everything has to be for you lauren i know it's not and that's fine (laughs) i am okay with that i absolutely accept that (laughs) Mm mm-hmm but yeah i mean i love john waters he's awesome yeah i've met him that's cool yeah i wish i had met him i got to see him talk uh at the ifc but other no it was very quick it was very brief he um gosh where was it it was a red carpet for something i think actually i think it was the spirit awards a couple years ago yeah it was with Kristen, and um he just happened to be there and she, I think she was the one that got him to stop and he just came over and chatted for just a minute but it was just like oh my gosh it's John Waters it was very cool all righty so new episode about John Waters coming soon I think is what we've just decided yes. <laughs> cool all right so let's shift gears and talk about Lois Weber who was a film director in the silent film era at one point she was the highest paid director in hollywood not female director director um and she yeah so she got her start she she was an actress and she did basically at some point or another did kind of every job in film production she was a writer a director she edited um, she produced her movies, so she's got, she had quite a lot of experience. Um, they don't actually know how many films <laughs> she made, um, 
it was a lot but in the early days that's kind of how it was like people were making a lot of like these short projects and many many of them were destroyed as we've talked about at length uh, on this podcast so we have no idea but uh some of her films are currently available on the criterion channel and i think in some other places too but um yeah so let's just jump in and and start where would you like to start well i mean i think we should start with suspense which is her 1913 um it's only about an 11 minute film but she Mm -hmm. in that film she's it's a very simple story as would be expected from an 11 minute film um basically a woman who is uh home alone her husband is at work he's going to be late and a tramp you know quote a tramp breaks into uh her house and so the entire story is basically the husband rushing home to try to rescue her while she is trapped in an upstairs room with their baby and so that's that's the basic plot and then there are actually some complications but what's really fascinating about it i think is that it was um a pioneer use of the split screen technique so mm-hmm. you actually get to see um you know her talking with her husband while the tramp is breaking in and it isn't just like you know talking heads or anything like that it's actual you know frames and so you see the tramp you know lifting uh getting the key from the doormat opening the door and walking into the house and meanwhile she's talking to her husband and her husband's like oh my god someone is in the house you know i've got to go and then um uh, i think the tramp ends up cutting the phone line Mm -hmm. Yep. And so the phone goes dead. And so you get all of this buildup and it's all happening in very quick succession. And you're watching it all happen in a single frame, which is really remarkable when you're thinking about that this is 1913. This is not early, early cinema, but fairly early days of cinema. Cinema as a medium has only been around for about 20 years at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've got this, this female director who is just making these massive inroads to what you can do in a very short space of time with the camera. Um, you know, you, you, this is pre-sound, so you're not talking about any use of sound or anything like that. It's just developing the story in this very rapid succession. Yeah. It's funny, uh, just jumping back a little bit. Um, it's funny because this week I read something where someone referred to Lois Weber as the as one of the first auteur directors. And yeah. um and then I just started thinking about, cause I was, I was reading up a little bit. I love suspense. It's a great, it's a great film. And it's amazing how much they pack into 11 minutes and how suspenseful it really is. Um, but I was just thinking about how, how much she's able to do with that film and, and just with the camera. And, and I started imagining like, if she were like if someone were to Bill and Ted style, go back in time, pick her up and bring her to now, um, like w- what she would think of film today and how far it's come and what's possible nowadays and what kind of movies she'd be making now. I don't know. I was just having a little fun going down that rabbit hole, but just thinking about like her and Chloe Zhao having a conversation about movies, <laughs> I think would be so cool. But, um, but yeah, suspense um like you mentioned the split screen but she also just does some really interesting things and in in other films too like she just does really interesting things with the camera like there's the scene where um the the woman the mother looks out the window and she looks down and she sees this tramp 
on the back porch about to like try to come into her house and he it's from overhead and he just looks straight up and there's just something like so creepy about that moment for me like it got me and I was just like this is so so well done and with the music the the um the music is just perfect uh, really really good score to just help bring it home but it's like in 11 minutes you have um a housekeeper quitting her job you've got a woman and and her baby in danger you've got a police chase because the husband steals a car <laughs> to get home to his wife <laughs> yeah it's it's great well and and one of the interesting things i think about all of that is that it you know this is a film called suspense but it is actually a great sort of template for how suspense works in cinema mm-hmm. so you've got a whole first of all you've got a whole bunch of information that the viewer has that the characters themselves don't have so the um the housekeeper quitting right the housekeeper leaves and leaves a note and says okay i'm i'm leaving because this house is too isolated or something like that yeah um so you you got a lot some. of inf- so you establish the fact that this is a very isolated house um, that no one else is in the house other than this woman and her baby, right? You and you've set that up within like a couple of seconds, basically. And also that she's leaving the key under the mat. Yeah, so you know where the key is. We've got we've established how the tramp is going to get into the house. That the key is going to become important. All of those things. But meanwhile, the mother doesn't know that this has happened, right? She's mm-hmm. just upstairs with her baby. She's got no clue that now she is vulnerable and in danger. Right. Um, and by the same token, when you get the the tramp cutting the phone line and the 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 husband no longer you know being able to talk to his wife, he doesn't know what's happening. So the viewer is aware of all of these different things, but the characters aren't, and that's where kind of they begin to build the tension. Um, that you've you've got this kind of kinetic through plot moving, and you know exactly you know. So again, the mother can't know that the tramp is walking up the stairs but we see the tramp walking up the stairs. So you get all of these different perspectives. And as a result, it creates suspense, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's the same thing with, you know, the cops. So the husband runs out and steals a car. And then the, the guy is like, hey, he stole my car. So then the cops are chasing after. <laughs> right, because they have no idea why he stole they, the car. Exactly. But so this entire time, and you know, as the viewer, you're like, oh my God, if the cops catch him, right, then he's not going to get home in time. But if they don't catch him and they follow him all the way back home, then they'll be able to save her, right? So you Mm -hmm. have all of this great um, establishment of all these questions and establishment of characters and everything that is going to happen in this film. And again, when you're saying 11 minutes worth of film, that's remarkable when you really think about it. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, It's such a testament to the not just Lois Weber but the early pioneers of cinema in general and just how I mean they were figuring out how this medium works in a time when they didn't include talking so it's like you know they um you know I mean a novel you kind of know and novels have existed for hundreds of years and so you can, you know what you can do with a novel. I mean, every once in a while you read one now that's still just like, wow, that was amazing. But it's more about like, that's amazing writing, not wow, that's such an innovative way to tell a story usually, you know. Um, but with the early days of film, they're trying to figure out how to tell stories, which we've been telling stories as humans since there were humans, but in such a new 
way and trying to figure out what worked and what didn't. And I think that's part of why there's, you know, so many directors were making hundreds of films because they were just playing around with things. Um, but what she accomplished in suspense, uh, what she accomplishes in some of her other films too, even when there's these short films, um, it really is so innovative. And this is something that I know, um, Fritzy for Movie Silently and also Nanina and, and you like have talked a lot about how, you know, everyone wants to give Griffith all this credit for all the innovations that he made in cinema, but there are so many people like Lois Weber that were doing it even before he was. At the time you have people like DeMille and Griffith and Weber, all of them were working at about the same time. And they are very innovative. And I don't think that we should ignore the fact that Griffith was innovative in a lot of ways, but his importance in cinematic history um, has been severely overrated. Yeah. Uh, where meanwhile, we're, we're denigrating kind of the innovations made by someone like Lois Weber. Uh, you know, I mean, if you had asked me who Lois Weber was five years ago, I could not have told you. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's, that's embarrassing in a lot of ways, but that's also like, you know, I, I went to film school. I have a master's degree in film. I, this was just never anyone that we talked about, particularly we talked about Griffith, but we didn't talk about Lois Weber. Um, and that's unforgivable really, because she has been marginalized. She's been largely written out of cinematic history until fairly recently. And, but you've got these, these major innovators, all of them are working at the same time. They're kind of playing off of each other. They're riffing on each other. They're working in the same studio for large sections of their careers. Um, and the fact that, you know, we've written out one of the few women, mm -hmm. I think I think says a lot. I mean, like you said, this is, this is woman, she was the highest paid director at Universal um, in like 1916. This, uh, and this is a, a studio that at the time also included Cecil B. DeMille. Right. So you're talking about an incredibly successful director who has just not been given her due, right? Yeah. So th this is not someone who's marginalized at the time even. She was very valued at the time and then things shifted, but, um, but we have failed to value her. Yeah, so I, I have been reading this book. It's very it's not very thick, but the printing is tiny. So it's taking me a while to, <laughs> to read it because it's, there's a lot in here, but it's called Pink Slipped, What Happened to Women in the Silent Film Industries by Jane M. Gaines. And it's interesting because um, obviously Lois Weber comes up a bunch in this, but um, you know, we've talked before about how you know, women sort of were the backbone of the early film. And like, there were a lot of women working in film and not just in costume and makeup, but uh, in writing and producing and, and directing. And um, it's interesting, there's a quote in here. So in 1928, after she'd kind of already been pushed out of, um, of the system, uh, she gave an interview in the San Diego Evening Tribune and, um, and she's talking specifically about how, so it's, I, I wish that I could find the article. Like, I wish I could look that up because I'd love to know what the, um, what the actual question was that she was answering, but she talks about, you know, women and men directing. And, um, she says, personally, I grew up with the business 
when everybody was so busy learning their particular branch of a new industry that the box office was all that counted. And so it wasn't even about like, oh, women are directing these movies and men are directing those. It was just, as long as you were making money for the studio, they didn't really care who was making the movie, which is funny because now we've gotten to this point of like, well, women aren't bankable and they're starting to starting to come back around that they are but you know for decades that was one of the the excuses is that women's films don't make money and for Lois Weber she's sitting there saying like well back in the early days they didn't really care as long as you were and um part of that I, I found myself wondering like well did she not notice what was happening to other women because she was making the most money sometimes and so she uh like her movies were really bankable or you know what I mean like yeah, ma- yeah. so I don't I know mean, it was interesting I mean even within this this time period there were a lot of female directors as we've talked about and, and as we've been able to observe she was definitely one of the most successful ones of yeah this period um, and some but of that, did that because... change her perspective like did that alter I'm... her ability to see what was going on outside of what her experience was yeah I'm, I'm certain that it did um at, at the same time she is right she's saying you know that this this when she was at kind of at the height of her career it was a very nascent industry it was a question of how long film was going to last I mean there was still sort of an attitude that film was a gimmick right mm-hmm. that this was a fad that was eventually going to vanish. Um, and then at a certain point it became, you know, a much bigger, stronger, heavier industry. But I find it hard to believe that she ha- that she didn't notice that she was slowly pushed out in favor of male directors. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. That other women in the same positions were, they because bas- basically the, the industry became more streamlined and the more streamlined it became, the more men took over. Mm-hmm. And, and as we've observed historically women have been kind of relegated to a niche right so we talk about female directors well really we should be talking about directors yeah exactly um it's not directing is not a gendered role it's not a gendered job well i i think it's I mean, funny nothing I think it was, is but i think it's alice guy actually wrote a um a, a an op-ed that was literally about how being a director, women are better at, at directing films than men are. Um, and, and it was because, and it was very gendered, you know, in the sense that the, well, a director has to sort of take care of everybody and, and be kind to everyone and sort of manage, it's like a household. So there's very much this sort of, you know, domestic almost element that's running through, but I thought it was really funny that she was like, oh, women are naturally better suited to be directors well, than you men. know what's funny is like, I've heard, like when I've interviewed people for for my work I've actually had actors and and behind the scenes like crafts people tell me also that they like when I've interviewed for say a movie directed by a woman and the subject will come up and um I've had them say something kind of similar but it's more on the lines of like women are just better at being in charge like they're not gonna take things personally they're just gonna tell you like this is what you need to do and they're they're better organized than (laughs) men are and they're less emotional about it (laughs) they're less emotional yeah Uh, actually justin throws at them (laughs) (laughs) 
that's a throwback everybody I don't know whether anyone would remember some of this but <laughs> no but but I, I do think that there's an argument definitely to be made about socialization because yeah. um and and so that's not necessarily saying that women are biologically no more capable right <laughs> no it's definitely just, yeah we know that women are socialized differently than men. And if you, if you grow up being socialized as a woman, you are, you have a different attitude towards certain things than you do if you, if you grow up being socialized as a man. Mm -hmm. So I, I definitely would, would agree with that because, and I, I think that also there's, there's def, there's gotta be an element in the film industry itself, because as we've observed, women are scrutinized, female directors are scrutinized mm -hmm. far more than male directors. You know, we've observed that, um, someone like Catherine Hardwick, who talked about how uh, when she was filming Twilight, she would sometimes have difficulties and she would like go off and cry for a few minutes. Yeah. And that it was helpful to kind of get her emotions out. And that this became one of the reasons that the studio gave for her not being rehired for the next films. Mm -hmm. um, meanwhile, David O. Russell is screaming and throwing things at his stars to the point that George Clooney wants to kill him. Yeah, but he keeps. In fact, I think hired. punched him in the face. Yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, and, and not to, not to get off topic on that, but it there is definitely like this attitude. So women do, in that sense, female directors do have to be more apparently in control of their emotions because if you break down and cry, oh my god, well she's a woman, women can't handle this. Yeah. But you know, if a male director throws something at, at a star's head, well, he's just a passionate he's um, an artist and artists are troubled people he's, he's a genius or whatever so i think that there's yeah. definitely socialization and also the um awareness of the requirements of the industry and the way that the industry treats men and women differently is definitely a part of that mm -hmm. yeah um, for sure but it's you know it's i would love to i wish that i had done a little bit more research i've been trying to look at some stuff um for Lois Weber is I would like to know or find some interviews of you know back in the time after she was kind of getting pushed out more of like did she talk about that experience how did she feel about losing out on opportunities to men after she had made so much money for the studio and you know she also yeah. died young she well I mean I guess it wasn't that young for the time she died at 60. I mean, that's still, that's still fairly young. And um, yeah. I, I think at one point there was a film that she was supposed to make and then she made some objections to some of the jokes uh, mm. be as being racist. Um, and, the, and basically she was fired and they brought on, uh, among other people, they brought on D.W. Griffith to of finish things up. Of course they did. Because so. <laughs> he didn't object to racism. <laughs> well, he probably yeah. <laughs> said, this movie doesn't have enough racism. Let's do more. It's just like, ah, oh, there's a joke about throwing a, a black baby into a trash can. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we light the trash can on fire? Oh like, my I gosh. Yeah. Oh. D.W. Griffith was a racist. Like, I don't care. You know, you can try to make arguments about intolerance or whatever. It's like, no, he's, he was a fucking racist. He was mm -hmm. explicitly racist. Yes. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. Anyway, so um, yeah, Lois Weber, she's awesome, and she made some good movies. And let's see, um, so 
she goes from suspense which she actually co-directed with her husband at the time and she started it as the wife um but she does a bunch of films uh co-directing a lot of them with her husband let's see what are who are some other ones that um that you would like to talk about well, I think in, in terms of um, this issue of social social issues, because mm-hmm. a lot of her films deal with um, issues that she felt were important, that um, you know, so social problems. She, you know, she made films about income inequality, about poverty, about. Um, I, I do want to talk about the blot in a minute, but yeah, definitely. I don't know if you've seen this film, but I think that it's one that that comes up a lot when it's discussed when she's discussed because it's one of her most successful films, but it's also one of her most, from a, certainly from a contemporary standpoint, her most problematic, uh, which is Where Are My Children? Which I have not seen, no. So this, this I actually got to see in, um, when they were doing, uh, Kino was doing the Pioneers female filmmakers mm. and they showed a whole bunch of the films at, at uh, Brooklyn Academy of Music. So I got to see this film on the big screen with piano accompaniment, which was really cool. But this is the film that she made about abortion, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's a it's a problematic film. <laughs> There's no <laughs> doubt about that, because one of the, the basically the plot is that um, a uh, a famous lawyer is prosecuting a doctor for doing illegal abortions, and what he discovers in this process is that his wife is among one of many society women who has gone to this doctor to have an abortion. Uh, and so that kind of sets off this whole thing. And a lot of it, unfortunately, the film relies very heavily on eugenics and this idea that there are women who are having fr- basically frivolous abortions. So these rich women who can certainly um, afford to have children, right? Mm-hmm. And have nothing stopping them from having children are nonetheless getting abortions because they don't want to deal with it. Hmm. Meanwhile, um, you know, one of the arguments that the film makes is that abortion should be available, but it should only be available to poor people (laughs) or, or to, um, to people. And, and so it's a, it's an odd, it is a eugenicist argument. Um, But one of the interesting things that I think the film does actually address beyond the, the problematic elements is that there's an entire subplot of the maid of this husband and wife who has, and if I remember correctly, she has an affair with um, the wife's brother who basically seduces her and she gets pregnant. And so you have this situation where there's this young woman who has been, um, who's been seduced by this older, richer man who doesn't want to have anything to do with her really. He just wanted to sleep with her. Um, and is now in a situation where she's going to have a child, she's going to lose her job, she's going to lose her social standing, what little she has, there's all kinds of problems. And so basically she goes to the wife who takes her to this doctor. Um, And so although by no means are we, (laughs) am I saying, or should I be saying that the eugenicist argument makes sense, but one of the issues that comes from the film is this whole thing of poor people and people without means having more and more children and destroying themselves in the process. Um, and particularly in the, in the case of this maid who then has this abortion and gets sick because it's a back alley abortion and it's dangerous. Um, so there are all of these other 
problems that kind of come out of that. So it actually, it's more, it's a more nuanced conversation. The film allows for a more nuanced conversation than just rich people should have children and poor people shouldn't. <laughs> um, so it's, it's undoubtedly a problematic film, but it actually treats of this issue in a very complex way and in a very um, sympathetic way. The, in fact, I would say that the film doesn't really come down on an anti-abortion angle. It comes down on abortion should be legal and should be safe. Right. Uh, because one of, one of the problems that kind of comes out of all of everything that's happening is that it's, it's something that is being concealed. Mm -hmm. And because it's being concealed and because it's illegal, it's dangerous. So these women are getting hurt or they're dying as a result of having these dangerous abortions. Yeah. Well, and this is one of those, one of those things where, you know, we talk about it all the time, but people need to watch more movies and they need to watch older movies because there's sort of this weird attitude that like, oh, abortion didn't become an issue that people talked about until like the 60s or 70s. And it's, no, this is something that's been going on for centuries. Um, and looking at, at films, even from the earliest part of, of cinema, where you talk about um, any sort of uh, social issues, it's interesting because now we're looking at these movies are 100 years old and we're still having conversations about some of the same topics i mean you're, you're talking about a film that was made in 1916 yeah by a female director mm -hmm. right and it and it has problems and it has questionable elements <laughs> very much so but it is actually a serious and complicated treatment of of the issue of abortion and the dangers of it and and the dangers of it not being legal yeah yeah well and then you have like this is what i'm so like then last year we had the movie never rarely sometimes always which is about a, a 17 year old girl who's having to try to navigate a lot of bureaucracy to try to get something that now is legal but there's still a lot of of um a lot of difficulty attached to being able to do something that is technically legal and um it's just interesting that you know 100 years apart both by female directors we're still having similar conversations i guess is the point i was trying to make yeah i mean lois weber i think in the the next year she made a film that is now lost that's called the hand that rocks the cradle hmm. um and it's about it's based on um margaret sanger and it's about accessibility to birth for birth control and it's him it is According to all the information that we have about it, it is heavily supportive of women having access to reasonable birth control. <laughs> um, and, and actually the working title of the film, I loved this. Uh, the working title of the film was, Is a Woman a Person? Mm. <laughs> wow. Um, I don't know. Did so, they ever answer that question? <laughs> but so, you know, again, you've got a film that is sadly lost that was made by a female director in the early part of the 20th century, for God's sake, mm. um, that is actually dealing with this, with these specific questions that we're still fighting over, you know, and, and we need to be able to go back to those and to see the problems in them, but to also see how that discussion was important in that period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, and there were a lot of, of social issues that she 
addressed. And this is, you know, people like to have those conversations of like, is film inherently political? Like even back in the beginning of time, yes, it was. <laughs> it always has been. Um, but she talks a lot about other issues, um, particularly. I watched the ones that are on Criterion um, right now. So there's a lot of other films of hers that I haven't seen. But, you know, in addition to abortion, she talks a lot about poverty, about income inequality, a lot of uh, like just the she has five films that are on Criterion right now. And it's interesting how each of them deals with with social problems and all of them deal with that in different ways. So um let's see what's the next one we should talk about we could talk about shoes let's talk about shoes because shoes is kind of um you know you you, if you're talking about income inequality and particularly poverty Mm -hmm. and what it drives people to do (laughs) yeah and and focalizing again through female characters i mean not all of her films but a large majority of her films actually focus on the female characters even when male characters are important Mm mm-hmm yeah so shoes was from 1916 and it's a, about a young woman who's working in um like a five and dime type store and so she's she's poor her family's poor and um she doesn't have money for new shoes and she really really needs new shoes they've got holes in them she's trying to fix them with pieces of cardboard and Uh, it's just it's bad and so she ends up resorting to prostitution to pay for new shoes yeah and and I like that again I like that the film deals with a whole bunch of different issues so she so she can't afford it her family can't afford it right Mm -hmm. in order to live they they actually need for her to have the new shoes because at one point she gets sick yeah. Right. And so she's sick. Meanwhile, she's, I think, the only income at that point that is coming into their family. So they, they are dependent upon her having a job. Well, she can't work if she's sick. Right. Yeah. Well, and she's, yeah, because it's, it's her parents and her and she's got three sisters, two sisters, three, three younger sisters. Yeah. There's a little yeah. one and then two slightly older ones. Yeah yeah and so it's they're they're relying on her and so she's desperate and i feel like what's what's really interesting about this film is that it it really does make her so sympathetic it's not a film where it's like oh what a terrible person that like she just resorted to this you know it really does bring out it shows her humanity and i feel like so many of lois weber's films do that where you really she draws on empathy of the audience by really making you feel for this woman and understanding like pardon the pun but or the expression but you you kind of are in her shoes because you're experiencing her her feelings her fears her desperation right along with her and so you it's it's easy to not judge her when she makes the choices that she makes because you're like well what would i do in that situation yeah, and, and it does, I mean, it does also address the fact that her father is lazy, right? Mm-hmm. Her father, who is not, is just lying around all day reading. Yeah. Um, he's not going out looking for a job. He's not trying to help, really. So her mother is trying to manage things. And there's there's this whole thing that gets going where she keeps on asking her mother for money. 
um, so that she can go and buy the shoes. And her mother's like, well, we can't do it this week, but we have to do it next week. And it's not because her mother is being frivolous. Her mother's like, this is between you getting shoes and us eating. Right, yeah, exactly. And, and of course, eating is more important. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it does so well at portraying, like you say, portraying that desperation and, um, and how important something so small is because most of us, don't think about, you know, having shoes. Well, Mm -hmm. just go and get a new pair of shoes if your shoes are bad. But when you're in a situation where you, it's it's a choice between that or eating, that desperation and that need is so dire. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's painful. She focuses on those shoes a lot, watching them kind of fall apart literally on screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's so many, so many shots of those shoes. She does that a lot in blot or the blot too. Um, but, but it's, it's such an easy way to represent um, extreme poverty because, you know, when you see someone just kind of out in the world I don't I don't spend a lot of time looking at people's feet but when you see someone that's wearing shoes that are just falling apart you understand that usually it's because they just can't afford another pair it's such a a good visual representation of extreme poverty yeah it it really is and like like you say it makes the girl so sympathetic it makes everyone but the father Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the guy that she eventually eventually sleeps with um right. are very sympathetic characters right the mm-hmm. the mother is trying to hold everything together she's trying to take care of herself and her children and everybody and she knows one of one of the things i think is really moving about that film is that nearing the end when it's obvious she's gotten new shoes right yeah um the mother knows what she's done Mm-hmm. and she's devastated by it but it's not it isn't like how dare you you know get out of this you've house. ruined our family yeah, yeah. it's it's more like oh my god i'm i can't believe that you've that you've had to resort to this my you know my child all this don't tell your father your father's going to be so angry but will there there is more of this sense that she is trying to protect her daughter as much as she yeah. can even as she's it's she's horrified by it but she's not blaming her right it's more yeah like you say it's more about the situation like i'm i'm horrified that that my daughter has had to resort to this yeah not oh my daughter's a tramp you know or whatever yeah um but that uh that theme is one that she uses really well again in the blot which i think came out the same year uh, I think it's I think it's slightly later. It's like, the, yeah, the blot is 1921. I think she. Oh, oh, earlier, yeah, yeah. Sorry, it? yeah, yeah, yeah. Shoes is 1916. What was the other one that was? Oh, the dumb girl of poor DC, which I did not get to see this week. Unfortunately, <laughs> I have not. Seen I watched it, it. <laughs> and it's, um, yeah, it, it was funny because I was just like, all right, this is based on an opera, and now I really want to see the opera. <laughs> it's um it's it's more of a fantasy like not fantasy um but it's more of like a what's the word i'm looking for um i don't know it's it's like this epic movie and it was actually one of the most expensive films that universal produced in the time period and it's so it's about it's when 
Spain was trying to take control of Italy back in the 1700s. And um, so basically this viceroy gets sent from Spain to Italy to be in charge. And there's um, this this uh, fisher, like this little fishing village. And there's this guy who um, stands up and says like, okay, well, I'm gonna be in charge of the village. And his sister is mute. And she ends up falling in love with this, um, uh, this nobleman who is one of the, the Spanish people who comes in and he's disguised. He, I'm explaining this so badly. Um, he comes into the town in disguise because he just wants to see what, you know, what the people are like and they end up meeting and they kind of, they have a very steamy sex scene. And I was just, it was funny because I was sitting there watching <laughs> with my roommate and uh she was kind of half watching because she was doing something else and i was just like wow that's steamy for 1916 and she's like why what's going on i'm like that is a fully clothed sex scene <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah she's just like it was i'm like yep <laughs> so yeah um but it's it gets into um you know, it basically leads to this uprising, this village revolts against Spain. And it's all based on, the opera is based on a real revolution that happened. Um, and uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating film. It's this big, like I said, big epic. We've got Anna Pavlova, who was a famous ballerina. It's the only feature film that they have of hers that she was ever in I don't know if she ever did anymore they don't seem to think she did um but she had had done the role on stage too and so she does it for the film she plays the the mute girl at the center of it and um it's it's so it's it's interesting like I really love the way that they blend like they find she Lois Weber she finds ways to blend dancing into this story and still make it feel sort of like you're watching an opera even though it's not created as an opera at all it's created as like this linear film um with this narrative it has some some just dance numbers um but it's very clearly you know a defined film but it, it still has these elements where it feels like you're kind of watching an opera it's it's very interesting I liked it I'm gonna have to I mean I just didn't didn't manage to get around to watching it yeah that sounds interesting because so many of, the, of her films that I've seen are the the more social issue films right mm -hmm. I think that um yeah I'm trying to think of one that's just you know more straightforward fictional narrative or a fantasia or something like that but yeah well this gets more is yeah category it, uh, you know it's funny because knowing that she spent so much time making social issue films it makes sense that she would also make this particular film um like why she would she would be a good choice to adapt this because it you know you've got this poor working class town rising up against the nobility and um, and it is an epic. It's much different from from some of so many of her others in so many ways. But thematically, it does still share a lot of a lot of uh, connecting material, I guess. Interesting. Yeah. So let's talk about the blot. Let's talk about the blot. <laughs> 
because you I, messaged me as soon as you were done watching it and I don't remember what you said but it was something very positive and I was like oh I need to watch that and then I did yeah so okay so what did you I mean I loved this film I was actually surprised by how much I loved it because I I admit that there are a lot of silent films that have an uphill battle with me particularly um dramas that mm-hmm. I sometimes I sometimes have difficulty focusing, um, or I'm just like you know like okay come on get get on with it. This one, despite the fact that it's a fairly simple story, um, I found really fascinating and intense. So, but before I go into it, I want to know you thought. <laughs> I also really enjoyed it. I th- I think that the way that they introduced. The way she introduces each of the characters and just like, hey, these are these three boys and they are, you know, kind of buttheads. And um, and then introduces each of the the members of these families. And um I think that, you know, again, talking about shoes and, and things like that, that's a really clear indication of wow this family is really poor and I think that it it does you know you've got this family where dad's a a teacher and the daughter is working in a library and they just don't have enough to make ends meet and you've got this mother who grew like she grew up in in money but now she's living without money and it's really hard for her and then there's this neighbor who's super judgmental and and yeah I, I i'm with you where it comes to like i love watching silent films that are comedies or melodramas the dramas are a little bit often a little bit more difficult for me because i find myself like losing focus sometimes but this one really just kept my attention and i i really enjoyed it i got so caught up in like <laughs> i was a little distracted by the beginning because you in, you get introduced to phil west um who's like this one of these three troublemakers at the school and it says he got by on murder (laughs) and I was like wait I know this is like 1920s language but does he mean does that mean he actually murdered somebody or is he just like the kind of kid who could get away with murder so I was all caught up in that and like I'm so confused right now (laughs) just like that is an early twist to this film yeah But uh, as you go along and as you get to know them, I, I really liked seeing that he's someone who undergo again, like I was talking about before, like as he gets to know, like not, not just the audience, but as he gets to know these people and see what their life is like, he undergoes a change, a very, very specific change where he becomes much more empathetic and caring. And it starts with just him having a crush on this girl, but it really becomes something deeper pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I do have to say, so Phil West is played by Louis Calhoun, mm-hmm. um, who we may recognize from later films, including Notorious, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious and The Asphalt Jungle. Like he's in a whole bunch of things as a much older man, obviously. But I, I found it very amusing actually to see him. It's just like, he's like, <laughs> 25 you know? <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i was like oh my god that's louis calhern he looks exactly the same but much younger <laughs> so yeah yeah i i i mean i think it's a great film i think it's it's really well paced and I, I i said this on twitter and i think i may have said to you just like i've never been so stressed about a chicken like mm-hmm. i'm so stressed out <laughs> about this chicken and what's going to happen with the chicken um yeah. 
And I don't, I don't want to spoil too much of the film to people, but there, there is a plot point, like kind of the climax of the film involves a chicken, and uh, and it's it's very it's intense. And but I think that that is such a good example of how Weber gets this tension and these emotions into again something that's very simple. And you know, so so shoes is about a girl who needs a pair of shoes. Mm -hmm. um, this is about is a little bit more complicated, but the 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 issue of the chicken seems like such a simple thing, but it is so important. Yeah, and and so much of this film is also just about appearances and about pride, because some of the tension between the the Griggs family, who are the the professor and his family, and um, the Olsons. The Olsons, yeah, is because Mrs. Olson thinks that they put on airs, and there is this other element of like, you know, so this this other family is more successful, right? They make more money, um, but they're immigrants. They are there. There's the implications that none of them are educated, all of that. So they feel secondary to to this other family who is much poorer, um, but are nonetheless prideful, right? And so there's there's all of that kind of interesting tension that goes on but it's also about that they're not really that prideful they just are embarrassed yeah yeah well and and who wants to be like nobody wants to be a burden on anybody else and so it's like even when they desperately need help they don't want to ask for it not because yeah. they don't need it or don't want anybody to know but because they just don't want to be a burden on other people and um and it really is, it's interesting because it gets into, you know, how terribly paid teachers and professors are. And, um, you know, because like how, I think, I think Phil actually says it in a letter to his father where he's talking about, you know, that you're entrusting these people with the, the youth, like with educating the youth and yet we don't value, we value what they do for people, but not monetarily. And that's really important. And it's, yeah. again, a, still a conversation we're having today. Yeah. A hundred years later. And, and I like the fact that a lot of the film is focused not on the professor himself, but on right. his family, particularly on the mother and, um, and their daughter. Mm -hmm. And all of those problems that go into it. And also the mother encouraging her daughter to you know, to wrote to to marry Phil or whatever to kind of be the one focus on him. And some of it, I, you know, on the one hand, you're kind of like, well, this is kind of, you know, mercenary, etc. But you also get the sense from the mother that she knows what happens if you marry some if you marry someone who's poor. Mm -hmm. And it's not because there's anything wrong with this poor young vicar or anything like that, but that you're going to be poor forever. Yeah. And and that that is wrong and that that's and so she's kind of pushing her daughter in the direction of this rich man not necessarily because he's a better man but because she wants her daughter to not have to live in poverty right but what i love to oh yeah we're gonna get into spoiling the movie but um what i love too is that her daughter pushes back on that not necessarily like vocally but uh just by not giving him a lot of attention until she starts to see a change in him but she's also got these yeah. other men that are interested in her too. So she's got a lot of options. So yeah, but yeah, but, she, yeah. she ultimately falls in love with him, not because he's wealthy, but because, because he, he proves himself to be a good man. Right. 
and that, that goodness is, is what's important. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that part of the point is that the vicar and the professor, et cetera, they should not be living on starvation wages. Like exactly. they should have the same kind of money. They should be able, it, it should be an issue not of, I need to push my daughter to marry this rich guy because otherwise she's gonna starve. And more, I want my daughter to marry the person that she loves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and that's just, that was not the reality for a lot of people it was, you know. And, and still isn't in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah, There's still, true. And we're, you know, women are much less dependent upon marriage, obviously, to, in order to survive for survival. But there is still that kind of calculation that goes on to a certain degree of like, you know, and like, like we're saying, becoming a teacher, becoming a professor, you are essentially relegating yourself for, to particular um, to, to particular system. And, you know, I have friends that are public school teachers and they are hideously underpaid. Um, and, and again, and they've been at, and particularly right now, they've been asked to do all of these things uh, and, you know, keep the kids educated during a pandemic, all of this shit. And they're still not, they're not getting compensated for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's like, so what's important here? yeah exactly you know it's funny that you bring up the pandemic because i was thinking about the fact that this movie the block came out in 1921 and i was just like huh they were still dealing with the pandemic when they were making movies i wonder how they dealt uh -huh. with it back then uh -huh. yeah exactly the last <laughs> the last pandemic <laughs> yeah. yeah and then i thought man did they have to like quarantine and isolate during productions i don't know anyway just a random thought i had but um did you watch discontent i did watch discontent yes what did you think of discontent i didn't like it as much as the others um i thought i liked the humor in it it, it one of the things i like about a lot of lois weber's films is that even when they're really serious topics she does tend to get humor into it somewhere mm -hmm. um like the blot has a whole i like the subplot with the cat <laughs> yes i love the cat <laughs> And the cat and like random kittens that show up every once in a while. It's just like she's got some kittens now. Mm -hmm. um, so, but but I like the fact that discontent does have this humor to it, um, and that the the issues at stake are less about it's really less about money and power, but more about like what actually makes us happy. Yeah. Uh, and and why. Yeah. So here's what I loved about discontent is that it's. Uh, sorry, I'm trying to think how to say this uh, so it makes sense. But I, you know, it's that whole concept of misery loves company. So basically, you've got this old man who's like a war veteran, and I realized, oh, he's like a Civil War veteran. The Civil War was yeah. only 50 years before this movie came yeah, out. Yeah, they're they're all Union soldiers. They're all yeah. wearing like this, the uh, Union uniforms. <laughs> yeah, and that was such a weird realization for me. It was like people were making movies when. The Civil War was only as far back in history as like the Nixon administration was for us. Yeah, it was grandpa, right? Yeah. It was your your parents or your grandparents' father. Yeah. So that was a little weird. But anyway, so it's this this old man, he's in this home for, you know, veterans and he's just mad. The food's not good, the bed's not good, everything's uncomfortable and his nephew has everything so much better and his nephew's doing well and the beds at his nephew's house are comfortable and so he goes and visits and they end up inviting him to come and live with them 
and uh, the nephew and his wife. And so it's like, oh, this is great. Our uncle's going to be here living with us. But he's just such a miserable person that even changing his circumstances and putting him somewhere else that's better, it still doesn't make him happy. And he just like one by one starts making everyone else miserable just because he complains all the time. And then people start thinking about the things that they don't like instead of the things that they do. And um, eventually he goes back to where he came from because he, he realized it was just better and he didn't have much, but he was happier. And I just, I, I, I agree with you that it's not as strong um, of a film, but I really like that the way that she represents and, and shows, like tells this story about you know just how a miserable person can make everybody else miserable just by existing <laughs> it is yeah it is that is true um yeah no I, I and I liked the fact that you know the the uncle he's not trying to make other people miserable no. he's but he's just like ah oh, you know he says to the son who's studying to be a minister right you know uh well you know you you want to save people's souls but you never really go out and live and like realize what sin actually is and then the, the <laughs> nephew gets or the uh, he, i guess he'd be a great nephew but he gets into trouble for going out and going to like nightclubs and stuff yeah. like that because just like oh you really shouldn't be doing that and um yeah he points things out that they that the family was okay with yeah yeah that he's that is then like oh maybe that isn't okay maybe we should change and they all become unhappy as a result yeah he starts to make them discontent like they he points out things that make them start to become discontented with their lives it's not that he's trying to make everyone mad or unhappy it's just because that's where his focus is is like on how things could always just oh like well let's do this that'll be better and so it just causes a lot of discontent i i like that there's the whole the whole little subplot with the daughter's boyfriend just like he's too short yes like here's too short for a woman like you you need a bigger man because you're a bigger woman it's like jesus christ and so she like break is breaking up with her boyfriend because it's just like no you're too short you're too short (laughs) exactly yep it's great so and then at the end it ends with that title card that says are you discontent (laughs) so it's turning it back on the audience are you or are you this you know happy person so anyway i like that Mm -hmm. i liked it I think the blot out of the ones that I watched, I think the blot was the best one, but yeah. Any others you wanted to mention? Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, no, I, well, I actually just wanted to mention, cause you talked about the, uh, the, the sex scene apparently, which I, I now definitely have to see this movie um, <laughs> in, in the dumb girl of Pratishi. Uh, Lois Weber also, I think takes credit for the first full frontal female nudity in a film. Mm-hmm. Um, for the film Hypocrites, that there is actually a sequence where it, it is like a full frontal female nudity. So I think that, you know, guys, <laughs> you have a woman to thank for this. <laughs> there you go. So. Cool. Yeah, I, I, I think she's just a fantastic director. She, as, as we've said, she, there, there were a lot of innovations that she accomplished and also just being able to tell stories. So this, this ability to create suspense and tension over things that, are, that seem to be fairly minor, but that become so important and, and how important they are to the lives of real people. You know, that, that issue of the difference between life and death could be a pair of shoes. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that there's so much meaning in that and that she's able to convey that on screen in a way that is, is difficult. Like she's a, she's a good director when you really yeah. come down to it. It isn't just that she's this major female director. She is a great director. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's the thing that I really, you know, I really would love us to get to the point where we don't have to separate directors by male and female because again like we said it's not it's not a gendered job it's something that anybody can can do um and there are lots of uh, lots of great directors and lois weber is one of them yeah we have a lot like even today we have a lot in film to thank her for from you know so many years ago Any final thoughts? No final thoughts on that. Yeah, just like I, I would encourage people to go, like if you have the Criterion channel, go and watch the films that are on there because you know, my personal favorite I think is the blot. Um but everything that she made like has definitely has value. I, I do also encourage people to seek out um where are my children just because I think it's an interesting film that's it's uncomfortable in a lot of ways and um this is not an endorsement of everything that it portrays but I think that it's important that one of the earliest films to deal with very explicitly with the topic of abortion was made by a woman mm-hmm. yeah exactly um I was just looking uh let's see so in addition to to the blot suspense shoes um discontent and the dumb girl of portici however you say that um the other film that's streaming right now is hypocrites which is available on canopy so there you go the rest of them are are just kind of not available some films are a lot of her films are, are lost or were destroyed intentionally um just because that was what they did oh we don't need these films anymore let's burn them and so a lot of stuff is is just gone forever and that's sad but i i, I do know that a couple of her film later films uh later in the 1920s uh are available on blu-ray um you know check out kino's mm, okay. kino's uh pioneering uh women filmmakers um have i think they i I, I want to say, I would have to look at the discs again, but I want to say that those actually have some of the fragments that still survive from some of her different films, some of her shorts, uh, and the two films that I know are coming out on Kino, or I think that are already out on Kino, and I need to write my reviews, <laughs> um, are uh, Sensation Seekers and A Chapter in Her Life, which are later films. They're produced by Carl Lamley. Um, but they're, la- they're later films post Lois Weber Productions um, and still silent, but they they are also available to watch. Very cool. Thank you. All right. So um, I think that's going to wrap things up for this week. Unless you wanted to talk about any current <laughs> movies. <laughs> I think that I'm okay. I don't want to make myself unpopular and I acknowledge (laughs) the fact that I am a a very white lady. So Mm -hmm. I I will leave things as they are for now. I'm glad people are happy. Yes, they should be happy. Yep. Don't be discontent. (laughs) 
All right. So that's going to close things off for this week. Then we would like to thank you all for listening. And we would especially like to thank our patrons who help keep the show going. Um, with special shout out to Adriana, Ali, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Mason, Matt, Matthew, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. Thank you so much for your support. If you would like to join them, you can go to patreon.com slash citizen name and sign up where you get access to full bonus episodes. You get early access to the show. You get lots of other fun stuff that's coming your way. Um, and and more stuff that we're planning very soon in the near future. We also have our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod. You can get shirts and masks and all kinds of fun stuff. And we have our Ko-Fi, which is ko-fi.com slash citizen dame. You can contact us directly if you'd like to at our email, which is citizen pod at gmail.com. And be sure to check out our website, citizen where we will both be having some Tribeca stuff coming very soon. And, and uh, yeah, and some other goodies. So um, you can also find us on the social medias. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Well, Twitter and Instagram is at Citizen Dame Pod. Letterboxd, we're at Citizen Dame. We're working on that one. It's still really new, um, but we're, we're going to be creating some lists and fun things there on Letterboxd too. So uh, yeah, but you can also find us individually. Lauren, where are you? I am on Twitter and Instagram and Letterboxd at LH Business. And I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. Thanks as always for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye. I'm good. I'm good up level with you. We can't get married at all. Why not? Well, in the first place, I'm not a natural blonde. Doesn't matter. I smoke. I smoke all the time. I don't care. Well, I have a terrible past. For three years now, I've been living with a saxophone player. I forgive you. I can never have children. We can adopt some. But you don't understand, Osgood. Uh, I'm a man. Well, nobody's perfect. <laughs>